Welcome to The Microscopists, a bite-sized bio podcast, hosted by Peter O'Toole, sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. Today on The Microscopists. Hello, I'm Peter O'Toole from University of York, and today on The Microscopists, I'm joined by Sir Jeremy Farrar, Director of Welcome, and one of the government advisors when it came to dealing with COVID. And today, we'll discuss things such as the role of science and the art in bringing people together. You should never underestimate the role that culture can play in bridging divides that politicians and politics makes difficult. Very unusual wallpapers in very odd places. The toilet of every house we lived in, the walls were covered in cut-out pages with poetry on it. I mean, it sounds bizarre now. The importance of always staying curious. I am still as curious about stuff today as, as a seven-year-old. I, I still am as excited by the by by questions as I was as an undergraduate. How to negotiate big choices, and I think when you're faced with a fork in the road, um, take the less well-travelled one. And the importance of never giving up. Did not get the grades first time round at A level, and so had that you know having you know that's a pretty hard wall that you hit all in this episode of The Microscopists. Hi, welcome to The Microscopists. I'm Peter O'Toole from University of York and today I'm joined by Jeremy Farrar, who's Director of the Wellcome Trust here in the UK. Uh, Jeremy, good morning. Peter, thanks very much for the invitation. I'm a lot more nervous than you are, so... (laughs) we were just chatting before and actually this is one of the most I'm not usually nervous and actually today I'm I'm not intimidated maybe that's the wrong term but I kind of have you so up here and given your time is actually really appreciated so I realize your diary is got to be one of the busiest of the people I've ever met with before Uh, so actually for those who are listening Jeremy is involved in an awful lot of things uh, from being director of the Wellcome Trust which actually Jeremy God Describe the Wellcome Trust, because we have a lot of listeners outside of the UK. Tell them what the Wellcome Trust is about. Uh, it's, I, I remember when I, when I was um, first taking over at Wellcome many years ago, Peter, um, my mother had never heard of it. So, so that, that I think tells you um, that, it, that, you know, of course, I'm very biased, but, but I think the, the Wellcome Trust is a really important organisation, obviously. Um, so it was set up. Uh, actually originally in the 1930s by Henry Welcome, uh, who uh, set up a foundation. Interestingly, the foundation owned a company in the 1930s called Welcome. It was a therapeutics, a, a pharmaceutical company. Then in the 1980s, he, he sadly died in the 1930s and left no, no uh, descendants, no children or siblings or parents, uh, whatever. So, uh, and then in the 1980s, um, the foundation completely separated from any links to any company. It, got rid it separated completely and so since the 19 early 1990s it's been a separate completely independent foundation uh, based in the UK but with uh, a global organization it now has an endowment which is what drives our ability to fund things and grant things and support uh, science and culture and society work uh, of about 37 38 billion pounds um, and we support science we support cultural work, we support the history of uh, science um, all around the world. So I, th- I think that's interesting. So obviously UK are a great benefactor, uh, the research community, but also the overseas element. So what proportion goes to overseas funding compared to UK funding? It's changing. Um, and and uh, Henry Welcome left a will and we, in- but the trustees, we're, we're very well governed, I have to say, pay tribute to the, to the board that oversees what I do and the team does. Um, uh, but Henry was a globalist. I mean, Henry Welcome was committed to global affairs really before that became a you know, trendy thing. Um, and so, and certainly in the last eight years with m- were my own interests in global affairs, and I would argue because of the political nature of our time and the great concerns I have about nationalism and, and becoming more insular, Welcome is taking a more global perspective. So historically, it would be about 
70% UK, Peter, and, and 30% uh, overseas. But actually, if you not so much of where money is awarded, but where money is, is focused, it's probably now about 65, 35, or roughly that sort of percentage, uh, 65 in the UK, 35 internationally. And, and, that, and that is, I, I know from some of the research happening at York that that touches on Africa uh, and many developing countries as well. And actually having reviewed some of the grants that come into Wellcome Trust, you see the applications also coming. Uh, certainly from Af South Africa seems to be quite a good uh, area of aware awareness that they can apply for these funds as well. <clears throat> so I, it's a big role being director of the Wellcome Trust. A lot of it, I guess, is also communicating what it does, making sure people are aware of it. Why did you take it on? Your academic career is stellar and, and it's, quite a, it's quite a step to become director of the Wellcome Trust. So what drove that ambition, that, that change in direction? Yeah, I, I think um, your career as well, Peter. I mean, I think you, you sort of think things are planned, but the reality is they're not. Um, you know, I don't think, well, I speak personally, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't think any of us have a clear vision of where we want to go. I'm, I'm not a person that wrote on the back of the envelope when I was, when I was a seven-year-old that I wanted to be director of welcome or, or president of the United States or something. Um, uh, I had been in working in Vietnam since 1995, 1995 to 2013, 18 years living in Vietnam. And uh, I think there is a, there's a sort of optimal time of being head or director of something. I, I think um, it, it can be too short. I think four, five, six, seven years is too short. And I probably think actually 18 is too long, too long for the people you work with, um, too long for your ability to see where your new things are. You, you, we all get stuck in our ways. Um, uh, and so when I wasn't thinking of leaving Asia at all, I was thinking of staying there, you know, till the rest of my career. And it was a wonderful place to be based. Uh, but then the opportunity came up and after 18 years in Vietnam, you know, you thought, uh, is this time, I was in early fifties then, is this time for a, a change? And uh, I thought I was coming back in 2013 to a, to a very sort of cosmopolitan European outward looking country. The 18 years I've been away, the food had got a lot better. The, you know, I, I, I think Britain was on a very optimistic way. And, and of course, I hope it still is. But there's been profound political changes since I've been back in the UK. And uh, it, 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 it's been a period of great turmoil, I think, and uncertainty over the last six or seven years. Um, uh, so it, it feels very different. I'm not saying better or worse, but just different now. Well, I, like I said, I think the food is still getting better. <laughs> <laughs> and the drink is also getting better, I, I think. Those certain things have certainly improved, and yeah, I I, I would say actually I, I'm a science should work without borders. Yeah, it's the most efficient way of working. So whatever the political climate is, no matter what happens in politics, we need to keep those borders removed when it comes to science. Uh, I think that's what you were kind of saying with the Wellcome Trust. It's very much enabling that. Yeah, I think, yeah, I, I would even push it further than that, Peter, actually. I, I think, again, you know, looking back over, over history, politics works in its own way. And, and you know, that's, that's very difficult to understand, I think, uh, when you're not in the political system. Um, but we should never underestimate the role that culture can play in bridging divides that politicians and politics makes difficult. You know, I... I whether that is the arts or it's sport or it's science, I think we, we in the scientific community, I think have got a, a really important role to play and a, and a constructive one in bridging divides, which maybe politicians for other reasons find difficult. So it's not just that, in my view, that science, in a, absolutely agree with you, works best across borders and open and sharing and sharing the benefits of science. But I think we've got a, almost a bigger responsibility to make the case for that um, and across borders uh, and, and for a more in, a, a less inequitable world. Um, and I think science has got a really important role to play in that. So it's interesting talking about making the case for it. And I, I guess Jan Ellenberg, when, when I spoke to him, he, he, so he promoted Eurobioimaging and was championing that and had great political problems actually delivering it. And it, without putting too much detail into it, uh, you know, 
he suddenly realized that politicians have agendas that don't necessarily fit what is logical or a proven case scientifically. Uh, and they're after, they're after maybe their own interests politically, rather than what is, again, a, a judgment on what's written down, like we would for a scientific case. So how, how do you get the politicians on side? It's such a complicated game, because obviously polit politicians are two sides to every one, and you've got to get both really on side. Otherwise, when powers shift, suddenly you're on the wrong side, and we need them both to be party to the visions. So how, how, how do you manage that complexity? I, 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 don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, what, I've, what I'm very sure of is you can't ignore it. Um, you, you, I don't think, I'm not saying everything is political, and, and, but, but you can't ignore that political space. And I, and I also, I think, um, when I, in a more charitable moment, I, I think really appreciating how difficult politics is. You know, you're, you're and, and particularly, I think, in today's world, although I suspect it was always true, you know, we we are in quite a fragmented, polarised world. Uh, and social media is changing that and, and uh, the way things are expressed are changing that. I think we're living through quite a period of uncertainty, of anxiety, of, of uh, inequality. Um, and, poli and politics and politicians are human and they're trying to broker this complex world which they don't necessarily understand they're not superhuman they're not they're just you and me um who've chosen a different career and i think i i do have at least some sympathy for the political process and for individuals and we must never forget politicians are human they have the same foibles weaknesses um insecurities that you and i have um uh having said that i i think politicians need to bring a purpose to to what they're doing and and as scientists, I think we need to not just think we can engage when we want to, or not just engage in the political process in a crisis like COVID or whatever. But I think we've got to see ourselves as being part of society, part of that political process and part of that political debate. And the best way of doing that is to be part of that all the time. I mean, uh, you know, pay tribute to, to this sort of interview and all the others you've done. This is part of it. This is part of explaining, I think, to ourselves. Uh, as well as everybody, whoever might be listening, beyond the two of us, um, to to what each of us saying. But I think we have to engage in that process the whole time. So, okay. So, so I, I've got so many questions, so many bits. So, I want to ask. You said you know you never envisaged that this is where you'd be when you were seven years old. Uh, <laughs> so, actually, what did you want to be when you were seven, ten, ten years old? When you were very young. Um. Really difficult to remember because it wasn't yesterday. Um, so I, 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 I was born in Asia, which is one of the reasons I think probably for going back. I, I, I didn't come. My, my parents. Um, my father was a, uh, a prisoner of war for five and a half years during the Second World War. Uh, I was the youngest of six children, so so my my parents were. I was the youngest of six, so so by the time I was born, um, they they you know. It's unusual somebody of my actual age to have a, 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 a parent who was uh, a prisoner of war for five and a half years. Uh, and then they left the UK in 19, uh, what, 1949 or 1950 to live in the Yemen in, um, uh, and then came back to the UK in 1979. So I had a, a very, um, uh, uh, I moved a lot as a, as a, as a child. Um, when I was seven or eight, actually at that stage, we were in the UK, I was at a, um, a primary school for a, a year or two in in um, southern England. Uh, I was I at that stage. I loved sport. Uh, I'm not sure I, I knew I was never good enough to, to be a professional sports person, but I did love sport. Uh, and then at school, high school, um, actually, I was I was much more sort of a, had a, an affinity as actually the rest of the family did uh, to to the arts, to English. Uh, I started off doing English. Uh, history and economics at A level, and then swapped over to doing biology, maths, and uh, chemistry. Uh, I was playing a lot of sports and uh, uh, did not get the grades first time round at A level, and so had that. You know, having, you know, that's a pretty hard wall that you hit, and then you realise you've got to resit them, and you have to take personal responsibility to that. But then that did work out, and uh, so I, 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 I'm not somebody that's had a. Um, a sort of clear vision of, of where I want to be and do. Um, uh, and uh, I, I've never really had that at, at sort of mid-teens, actually perhaps linked to my past. I, 
I thought I was going to do economics or or politics at university and and um, do something very very different. So I think just to, I'll, I'll dwell on the sport bit. What were your sports when you were at school then? So like many, I, I started off at, at primary school playing playing soccer, but actually after primary school, I never played football again. Um, I was then at, at school in Tripoli, Libya, for many for a, for a long time, and and uh, actually was brought up uh, playing a combination of baseball and cricket uh, because there was a big American there was a big American school there at, at that time, early nineteen seventies. Uh, but my father was a a very very actually very good, but also very committed rugby league player. Um, was from Yorkshire and a very committed rugby league player and cricketer. Um, and so I actually then was brought up playing. Uh, I, I played a lot of rugby uh, and a lot of cricket and um, uh, to, to a pretty high level through high school. I, I uh, And then through university, I continued playing rugby through university and, and played for whatever England students and England under 23s at that stage and, uh, and, and, and cricket at a, I was really pissed off because I, I cricket was actually my real love actually, but I, 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 I played for um, England under 23s at rugby and I, but I failed to get into the England um, under 19s uh, cricket team. I, I failed at the final hurdle when the Southern schools played against the Northern schools. And to be honest, we're playing in a completely different league. They were so much better. Um, so I never made that, but, but I played a lot of sport all the way through. I, I'm still playing cricket now. And I only stopped playing rugby um, 10 years, 10, 15, 12, 12 years ago. Good grief. That's quite a physical sport to keep up for that length of time. And yeah, rugby's changed a lot, though. I mean, I'm, I'm small. I'm only, you know, I, you know, rugby has changed so much now. When I was playing, you, you, um, it wasn't the physical game it is today. So, I've got to ask quickly, batter, bowler? Bat, batsman, only batsman. Opener? Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, no, yeah, or number three. Well, no, I was going to say one, two, or three. So there you go. Number two or three. <laughs> well, that, that, that's brilliant. So it was interesting. You said you didn't do too well at your A levels, uh, and yet here you are at the top of the game, even though the A levels first time didn't pan out that well. But you did. You chose immunology, did you, to do your degree? Yeah, I. I quite a specific degree. That's quite a specific subject. It's, it's not like a broad biology where carry on a biochemistry this is human knowledge is quite you mean a degree undergraduate level yeah no what so i so i um when i eventually did get the grades at university for university i, I then studied medicine at ucl and actually one of the really um pivotal moments because i do i do believe that as you go through careers and and life um there are everything matters but i think there are certain moments that really do matter when you sort of are faced with one of my favorite poems about uh, uh, roads diverging in a wood. Um, my, my father was an English teacher. So throughout my childhood, I, I remember, I mean, this, I hope this is not, doesn't sound bad, but, but I remember um, always in the toilet of every house we lived in, the walls were covered in cut out pages with poetry on it. I mean, it sounds bizarre now. Um, but I, I, one of my favourites is um, is uh, two roads diverged in a wood. I, I I do think occasionally in life we are faced with choices and we make choices and they have quite a profound influence. It's not a one route. You don't choose this path or that path, and it's everything else is closed off to you. I I do believe there is more flexibility. I hope I'm right than than people think. But I but I do think you have ultimate choices. And when I was at university, I, the first two years I found quite tough in medicine because you know, um, I felt a bit of an imposter. I'd failed my levels. Everyone else seemed very clever and and was and and hardworking. And the first two years were were challenging. But I also, I, I've never been very good at learning long lists of things. And a lot of medicine is learning long lists of things. Um, you know, where this muscle inserts or that nerve goes. And I, I was never brilliant at that. And then I had a year doing a an extra degree, and I worked with somebody who's really been, I think, still now pivotal in my own thinking called Cheryl Tickle. Cheryl Tickle worked in, um, in the Middlesex. Um, then she went to Dundee. I think she's now semi-retired, at least in Bath. But, but she worked on chick, how a chick limb bud develops. Uh, first time I'd ever done any electron microscopy. 
um, and vit the role of vitamin A and how it affects how a limb bud develops. I mean, how could that, how far could that be from what I do today? But what Cheryl taught me is just the excitement of being on the edge of knowledge. Uh, that actually medicine, which is largely about knowledge and, and proven information, but here in science, you could work at the edge of uncertainty. And actually that was very exciting. Uh, you didn't know the answer. You, you didn't know what was coming. And, and, and I found that very exciting. I used to argue a lot, not argue, I used to discuss a lot with my mother who was a, uh, um, many things, but one of which was a pretty good artist. And I used to argue with her that science and art were actually very similar. You start with a blank canvas. She had no idea what she was gonna paint. Um, and, and you know, to an extent in science, you have some idea, but often you don't. And I love that uncertainty. And Cheryl Tickle deserves enormous credit for then what I went on to do, because it opened up the idea that medicine wasn't all about rote learning and lists. It was also about uncertainty. Have you ever told her? Yeah, many times. No, I, I, that's a that, Pete, that's a really important point. Uh, I suppose as you get a little bit older, what you underappreciate is is how um, how much is appreciated when you go back to somebody like Cheryl and you say, Cheryl, that changed what I did, and it actually changed and and acknowledge that. And and too often, not in Cheryl's case, but too often you you hear of. Uh, you know, somebody passing on or you lose touch with them and you just never go back and acknowledge and thank them really. And, and I've, so I, yeah, I have kept in touch with Cheryl, not every day, not every Christmas necessarily, but she's very aware of the fact that that was a really important moment, certainly in my life and career. Kind of actually answers one of the questions I was going to ask, which is, you know, who's been some of the most influential people in your lives? Uh, but actually, I'm going to ask a totally different question. <laughs> drinking so what are you drinking at the moment i'm drinking uh, coffee i'm a great fan of coffee my, my um I, I give tribute here to my wife who's from vienna before i met my wife i thought um, nescafe was the height of coffee uh, gold blend being a real special day um but but uh, christiane taught me that there is such a thing as good and bad coffee um and then i've been on i don't know about you but i've uh, during lockdown of 2020 i, I found myself taking less exercise, uh, being sitting in a room where you are now, where I am now. Um, and I, I did put on weight and I found myself drinking four or five cappuccinos or lattes a day. And I, so I've moved to drinking espressos now. And, um, uh, but I'm a great, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> uh, actually, I, I think I, no, I didn't, dec I, I couldn't swim for obvious reasons. But yeah, I, I found other exercises and, and running, of course, we could still run. Mm. Um, mm. And, and I just couldn't run with my friend at a weekend so right. we'd, we'd run opposite directions so we'd just go past each other every now and just to make sure we were both okay on the long distance runs so we were keeping with him anyway that's digression uh, from it <laughs> so you could say as a child you weren't sure what you wanted to be there was sport there was other things if you could do any job in the world no <laughs> what would you do what would you be um, if you're today, I, I, despite, and I'm sure this is true in you, it's true in all of us, if we're honest, uh, the challenges of it, and it, it is challenging, uh, all, all, everybody's job is challenging. I, I think if you ask me that today, I would do what I'm doing now. And that's a, a huge privilege to, to say that. I, I, I think that um, ju not just through COVID, but generally, science and culture is, is so important at the moment as a sort of grounding in a very uncertain and to some degree troubled world, whether it's generational or racial or, or sexuality, whatever it is, I think we're living through quite a profound time at the moment. And uh, I, I, I think the privilege of, of being able to work at that cultural scientific interface and, uh, and, and on a global level um, is, a, is a huge privilege. What I would wish to do next, I've no idea. Um, uh, you know, I won't be at Welcome Forever. Um, uh, what I do next, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, but I, I would, if you, if you say, what would you do in your ideal job? Um, it would be, I think, making the case for the, for, for the international agenda that I think is so critical. And I, I think as the 21st century is gonna 
be troubled unless we can work internationally uh, because you know truly none of the challenges of the 21st century are going to be answered by being nationalistic and insular um uh so i would that's what i would wish to do i think and i i'll go i'll go do a big plug uh i think we're not going to solve the answers without new technologies either which seem to be really driving science forward at the moment oh i could i couldn't agree with you more and we take I do think we we often take that for granted and and um actually pay tribute here to some some people at welcome who've opened my mind about that people like Mike Ferguson who I'm sure you will know and yeah. um, and Michael Dunn within within welcome who just made the case that so many advances happen by technology advances which then great people particularly if we make it open to people use in ways that none of none nobody at the start would ever have thought about um and 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 the culture and science doesn't doesn't just go in a straight line. It often goes in a series of steps. Um, and then you look back and you say, gosh, it was because of that that we we changed, whether it's electron microscopy that I did with Cheryl Tickle or or cry OEM that, that you know, you and others are leading a, a, around at the moment or the chemistry behind all of that. So I, 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 I don't know if I can ask this on here. Or, or be cheeky. Obviously, Welcome Trust have been, we have been huge benefactors from Welcome Trust, both, both in the academic research aspects, but also with the equipment investments, uh, sort of shared resource. Uh, and we've, our nanostream came from that, we've had other microscope systems uh, come from that. But I think that that's now stopped at the moment. Uh, it's in flux. So it's paused. Is there going to be something around funding shared resources? Yeah, uh, I'm I don't know. Don't have to answer that. I will. No, I will. We, 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 you quite rightly said at the start of this, you can't come on if you're not prepared to answer questions, and you're absolutely right. Um, Wasn't that uh, <laughs> Um So I, I, I think I don't. I don't think apology is is the right word, but there's a bit of that in this, um, and and that is I. I think organisations. Um, sorry, I'm going to give you a, a, a sort of longer-winded answer. I hope that's all right. Um, well, Welcome has been in a, an extraordinarily strong position and pay tribute all, to all of my predecessors uh, in building the place that I then inherited. Um, but I do feel that an independent charity with it, all its own money um, needs to really challenge itself of what its place in the world is. Because, because when you are lucky enough to be largely giving away a lot of money, one, 1 1.2, 1 1.3 billion pounds a year. Uh, you don't have clients in the same way. You don't have customers. You don't have the corporate drivers. You don't have the constructs that is in the academic world that, that is inevitably constrained. You don't have the constraints of politics. And I think therefore you have to bring your own critique and you need to ask not where you are today, but where you wish to be five years, 10 years from now. And, and, and there's no burning platform. There's no reason to change necessarily because you and others sort of might be nice and say you're doing good things. I think you have to change before you need to change. Uh, because if you go up that curve, you're at the peak of whatever you're doing, you will inevitably drift down again unless you reinvigorate and re-energize. And that's a very painful process. And, and where I bring the apology in is we have been going through that over the last, particularly the last two or three years. We're coming through that now. Uh, and I do believe, I would say this, of course, that we're coming, we're going to be stronger as a result of it. We, we will, I believe, have more money. That's a very positive thing. When I joined Welcome, the endowment, which drives us, stood at about, I think, 14 billion pounds. Today, it's 36, 37 billion. Now, it could become 14 again, and I lose sleep over that, but, but it might become 50. Who knows? Um, and I think the restructuring will allow us and the technological work you did and the shared resources, uh, the bringing people together to, to invest, to share those resources, um, whether it be technological, cryo-EM or in things like biobank, um, there will certainly be opportunities for that in the future. And I just hope that people will bear with us during this period of change, which I appreciate is really disruptive, particularly in COVID, but I do believe we will come out the other side as we are now in a stronger and better position to be what will be the first or the second or the third, I know, biggest philanthropic organization in the world. Which we, it'll be exciting when those calls come back uh, and ho hopefully we won't have to wait too much longer to hear about them. You talked about politics earlier and obviously, so again, 
I know your involvement with the COVID response uh, as a country. Uh, I, I read part of your book, uh, Spike, I think it was called. Uh, and for those who are not familiar with the UK scene, the UK has a SAGE, a scientific advisory group of experts, which, which feed in to the, the advise and help direct how the government responds. They don't tell the government what to do, but they give them all the advice and information that they require in a digestible way, <laughs> I, I think. Now, you were the first on that SAGE committee, I believe, along with Chris Whitty, uh, Neil Ferguson, uh, Patrick Valance. What was it like at that moment? I, I, I would love to know, I think actually people would love to know, what is it like to be in that inner sanctum of advisors? So much pressure from everyone telling you you're wrong <laughs> outside of it as well, because they'll chance their luck and come out with an opposite opinion because it could be right. But tell us what, I'd love to know what it's like <laughs> and what those meetings are like. What's the pressure? How free-flowing is it? How argumentative is it? What is that atmosphere like? What's it like being on stage? Um, yeah, you, you, uh, as you describe it, is right. I mean, it was January 2020, early January 2020. We're now in November today, November 21. I mean, it's diff It's very difficult to put that in context of what what's that 20 months or or 21 months or something of of your life. Uh, I, I'd still think actually as a societal global society where people will be talking about this in 100 years time. Um, you know, I hope we never go through anything like this again, but we still talk about 1918 and the influenza pandemic of 1918. I mean, it's these are these are huge moments in history. Uh, and I remember talking to a, a journalist, I think Tom Whipple at the, the, the Times in, I don't know, February, March, April time of last year and saying we're going through history. And when you look in, you, you look back in history, if I read a history book, and I, I love history, um, if I read a history book of previous events, whether it was my father's generation of the war or, or the previous generation of his parents of the First World War or, or, or the pandemic of 2018, you often read those books and you, it feels almost not romantic, but it feels sort of romantic in a way. Gosh, they were living through that. And the reality is it's horrible. Um, you know, the, just the, the, the change to all of our lives in the last two years has, has been profound and, and there's been positives. You know, I've, I've been able to work from home. I've seen more of the family and the rest of things. But, but all of our world seems to have got smaller. Um, you're in your sitting room or living room or I'm in whatever room I'm in. And, and you talk about running with your friend and going in opposite directions. I mean, that's unthinkable to in 2019. I would also pay enormous tribute. I mean, I. I cannot pay enough tribute to the leadership that was provided through Sage of Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty. Uh, I'm not saying I agreed with all of everything that was done throughout or, or, or whatever, that, that's not the point. But the leadership, because leadership is not about always agreeing, um, the leadership they provided, I think has been absolutely extraordinary. And I think the, the UK and indeed the world has been very fortunate that we just happened by chance to have those two in those positions. Um, so, so being on stage was both a, a combination of some very tense discussions, some very profound disagreements at times, and, and, and both of them, particularly Patrick, I think, deserves great credit for facilitating that and allowing that to come forward. It evolved over time. It's not the same uh, in, in after 18 months that it was at, at the start. Um, and, I, and I think um, Patrick made a very important decision very early on that, it, unlike in the past, the SAGE minutes and all of the science behind it would be available to the whole of society uh, almost immediately and, and certainly as soon as was possible. That transparency, I think, has been absolutely critical um, to allow people to challenge the advice, to challenge the thinking, to challenge the science and, yes, provide alternative ideas. Uh, and sometimes that was very troubling when it seemed divorced from the evidence that was in front of us. But overall, the piece, I think it was far, the positives far outweighed the negatives. Um, and the second, the last thing I'd say is, is I think we need to, going forward, we need to learn that and to appreciate that you cannot build that interrelationship between science and politics in a crisis. So the, so the scientific advice into government, and by science, I mean social sciences, biomedical sciences, whatever you call science, um, culture as well, that has to be part 
of the civil service and, and political system, not just in a crisis. You cannot establish that trust in a crisis. It has to be there all the time and has to be part of the political process. How stressful did you find it? Very stressful. I mean, um, and, and not just the SAGE environment, but, but you know, I've talked about this in other places and um, uh, yeah, in, in the book as well. It wasn't just what was happening in the UK. It was, it was the, do you remember in January 2020, uh, the origins of the virus were, were very controversial, maybe remain so today. We had a, a very tense standoff throughout 2020, particularly between the US and China. Uh, between a President Trump and a President Xi, you're, 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 um, you know, I've interfaced with policy and politicians um, through some aspects of my career, but never at that level, of course. Uh, you, 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 you feel caught in the middle, you know, particularly around, say, the origins of the virus that seem to be pitting, you know, the whole of governments, that, you know, huge governments, China, US and, every, and everybody else in the middle of it. Uh, that's very uncomfortable. That that no, I mean that that's an understatement. It it was very stressful. Yeah, and I I don't lose sleep over many things. I you know I think when you train in intensive care and in medicine, you you bring a certain protection of yourself. You you can somehow you you have to protect yourself. You have to have time away to to you have to protect yourself. And so I've I've I think. I was able to do that and I had a very supportive family, which makes a huge, huge difference. But there were times that, um, yeah, I, I do not look, I, we're, we're very, very difficult. Yeah. I, I was going to come out, how did your family find it? Because we were also aware in the British how the press took a great interest in the committee members of SAGE as well and their backgrounds and everything else. So were you aware of that going on in the background and this extra scrutiny of yourself as a just as a member of sage of course and that's that is very that is very difficult you know when we're we're not you none of us are used to that celebrity sort of you know when when you know we're not in the newspapers we're not in generally in the conversation around um the newspapers we're 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 not used to that i think as a community and uh and it's both on the scientific level the advice level but also it does cross across into the personal level. Um, and there were, there were certainly times in 2020 particularly, and to some degree in 21, when that was very, very, very difficult, um, particularly when it becomes very personal, when it becomes personal, not just to you, but also crosses over into your family, you know, whether it be abuse on social media of your children or, or your wife or whatever, uh, and some of it, uh, you do learn to deal with it, um, and you get a lot of help, uh, including from the SAGE system and the political system. The civil service have been fantastic. I, I call out the civil servants who work, have worked in this. They've been absolutely staggering in the roles they, they've played and the support in this emotional and the rest of it. But yeah, it's, it's hard to take, whether social media, by email or, or, or other places of... Um, uh, abuse or death threats or you know people taking photographs outside the house or or whatever that, that was, I don't want to be melodramatic about it but that that's not a comfortable environment for any of us to be in and it was um uh, it, there were very difficult times through it yeah any of them ever any of your family ever suggest that maybe you shouldn't be on stage and just just cut loose and get back to life get back to concentrating just on the welcome trust your day job uh, yeah. those added pressures and stresses um there were times again and uh, you know the, uh when I, when i thought of stepping away from sage uh in fact i've stepped away now for very different reasons i you know after 20 months i think and the scientific advice i think intergovernment now is actually pretty clear um these are now political decisions about the choices that are made but i think the scientific advice oh, that was, of course uncertainty in 21 was much higher in a way and there were times when i as I've said, I was I was very strongly opposed. I wonder what the, the role of scientific advice was when it when it didn't seem to be taken, particularly in the autumn of 2020, which uh, I very strongly disagreed with. But actually, it was more the family that said, "Are you better in or out? Um, you know, what's the point of leaving? <clears throat> you know, you, leaving in 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 October as I did 21 was a very relaxed affair, and and uh, it, it, you know." 
it shouldn't be interpreted in any other way than I felt that the scientific advice was clear, was now pretty clear. And that it's not that there was no role, but actually my contribution was, was pretty small and it was a good time to, to, to concentrate on the day job, as you said. But, but actually the, the, the discussions at home and in others that you know, I've respected and listened to and took advice from and you know, pay tribute to the chair of Welcome, who was absolutely wonderful in the support, Eliza Manning and Buller through all of this. Uh, and of course her own steep experience at, at MI5 when she was there before being chair of Welcome, she was an absolute wonderful mentor and supporter through this, uh, through some difficult times. But no, the family advice actually was much more, I, you know, Christiane, is, is um, Austrian and, and very clear thinking when I sometimes lost the plot. Um, and her advice was, you know, if you leave, you know, with that advice, is it better to continue to give the advice? And, and I think she was absolutely right to say that. And in the end, I think as, as Patrick and Chris and many others have stayed in, I think it's been so important that they have done. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think you were right to stay in because it's easy to shoot from the outside. But it's only on the inside can you really, even if you don't get, if your opinion isn't taken fully on board, at least science is about disagreeing sometimes, about hearing the other side of it. And you can at least make sure they heard that other side of it. Yeah. When you got home, what would you do? Read a book or watch TV? I'm, I've, um, I think it was partially, again, because my upbringing, I've, I've, I've never been a TV watcher. Um, we have a TV at home, but but I can't remember the last time it was turned on, actually. And I know TV is separated and people have, we all watch on mobile devices. But no, I've never been a uh, an avid uh, TV uh, listener. I do still play sports uh, in the summer. I play a lot of cricket, um, not as much as I'd like to, but I play quite a lot of cricket. Um, and I do read a lot. Yeah, I read a lot. And actually, I write a lot. Um, uh, rubbish, but I do. <laughs> I do. I do enjoy writing. Um, and I and I um, and I do enjoy reading, um, but also I, I think all of us need. Everybody has stresses in life. So everybody, whatever level we're all working at, um, there are there are levels of stress in our life. I think it's so important that we all acknowledge that we're not. None of us are superhuman. <laughs> None of us are superhuman. We all suffer to some degree from the imposter syndrome. Why am I, why am I uh, from here? We all have challenges in our lives and some are greater than others, but at various. I think it's just so important to have a space that you can go to, which is, which is your own. It could be loud, it could be quiet, it depends on you and what works for you. But, but I think we all need to some degree accept that we need to protect ourselves uh, to some degree and find that space. Some people get it through yoga. Some people like you get it through long distance running. We all get it in different ways, but I think we, it's really important we all acknowledge the need for that space um, and know when to step into it um, and just sort of take time out. So you said about writing and reading books. What is your genre? What, do you, what sort of book do you read? What do you write? Very different things. Um, so on the, on the reading side, um, a, a, when on holiday, I like to read sort of um, easy to read things. Um, uh, when uh, I recently, uh, last book I read, actually, I've just come back from a week away, which is which is fantastic. Holidays are so important and, and taking holidays is so important. Um, but I wrote, I just read the last on holiday, the last book of John Le Carrier. So okay. that sort of, you know, I think he writes very well, but it's easy to read. Yeah. Um, I, I did, uh, I was a huge, huge honor and it was, actually was great fun. Um, you should do it. Um, I, I guest edited the, um, the Today program, I think last Christmas, Christmas before, I think 20, uh, December 2020, uh, that's right. And I was introduced through that, although I actually knew before, um, Elif Sharif, I don't know if, um, uh, I'm gonna give a, a plug now. I don't know if you know no, the missing trees. Yeah, I'm not familiar with it. Okay, so she she she's a brilliant um, uh, Turkish family, uh, uh, very interested in uncertainty, uh, very interested in how we all deal with uncertainty. We would love, I'd love, we would love to write a book together on it because I'm fascinated by uncertainty as well. Um, and she wrote a little book which is not here in front of me. I can't bring it up. Um, uh, how to stay sane in an uncertain world or something like that. Um, but, but a very, very um, uh, thoughtful writer, I think. And, 
uh, and she's dealt with um, with her own sexuality, with Turkish, with other parenthood and ancestry, living for some of the time in the UK, but being something of an outsider. Uh, just a very, very interesting sense of the times that we're living in. I, I, yeah, I'm going to put it up again because I can't speak highly enough of, of it. Um, uh, and then on the writing side, um, uh, obviously, some thoughts around science and politics and culture and the international dimension. I'm I'm very interested at the moment in how governments cope with domestic demand, domestic pressures in an international context. I, I don't think politically we've got a head around how do we deal with providing vaccines for our own citizens whilst knowing actually the enlightened self thing to do is to give vaccines for the world. How do you, that's one direction and another direction. I'm not sure we've got a head around how to deal with that. that that's I find very interesting and enjoy writing about, about that. In, uh, for my own benefit, I wouldn't make it public. Um, uh, but yeah, I just think we all have to have that headspace uh, and acknowledge that we all need it. You know, there, there, are, there aren't superhumans. We're all, we all have the same degree of insecurities and, and stuff. And, and I think acknowledging that is perhaps one of the most important things. Some quick fire questions for you. You're an early bird, bird or night owl? Uh, night owl. Night owl? Okay. Uh, I, I know the answer to this. I think tea or coffee? Coffee. Uh, wine or beer? Uh, both. Not the same. Well, maybe at the same time even. <laughs> Red or white wine? Red. Yeah, it has to be. Uh, what's your favourite food? Vietnamese. Who cooks at home then? Uh, <laughs> both or neither of us, actually. Um, uh, the kids more than either of us. Okay. Well, well taught. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't mastered that one, that's for sure. I noticed uh, your favourite breakfast? Uh, all bran. It's a legacy from my mum. My mum was evangelical about eating all bran from the mid-1960s onwards, and I'm convinced that's why she lived to be 95. <laughs> so, so you're on the all bran for that purpose. So if you ever stop eating all bran, get worried. <laughs> so uh mac or pc mac mac oh. uh, cricket or rugby league uh both actually um oh, you've, got, you've got to choose one okay cricket ah uk or singapore um uh ooh, that's a really difficult one um pass <laughs> vietnam or singapore vietnam Vietnam or UK? Uh, really difficult one as well. Um, <laughs> you just don't get a lose you. If you're forcing me on, probably Vietnam. There's your UK passport gone, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> do you have any bad habits? Yeah, I do have uh, bad habits. Uh, what are they? Um, what would... <laughs> uh, timekeeping. I think I've got much better at it, I'd have to say, because I... I realise, as you, as you do inevitably become more senior, one of the things that really pisses people off is when senior people are late for things. I think that's really disrespectful. So I have really tried hard to make sure you keep... I was late this morning. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I, I really, one minute. <laughs> yeah, I really... Um, I think it's really disrespectful. And uh, I, I, But I historically, I've not been good at, at timekeeping. Um, uh, what other bad habits? I'll, I'll, let me come back on that. Well, I'll think. I'm gonna. Okay. Chocolate or cheese? Uh, cheese. Ooh. What type? Uh, any goat's cheese I love. I love the. Uh, there's a huge number of really great British cheeses, uh, but I have, particularly in the last um, 25 years or so, gravitated also to a hard European cheeses, uh, Austrian, um, French. Uh, hard cheeses but i do love cheddar i love goat's cheese i love all in fact i i cannot think of a cheese that i wouldn't like okay knocking around at home what is your favorite item of clothing bit of a random question um well it's certainly not a tie i hate ties i i i i'm amazed ties have remained as as a sort of ever worn by anybody actually um I think my favourite is probably um, 
some degree of sort of at home of, of sort of sweatpants or something similar um, uh, of uh, relax. Yeah, he's just comfortable. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I just like getting those, those different bits. If you could meet anyone in the world that's alive, who would you like to meet that you haven't yet met? Who's alive? Um, uh, you know what's coming up next now. <laughs> I think, I think, well, I have I have actually met, but not in a one to one because I think you're getting at who would you like to go for dinner with sort of thing. Yeah, um, I think I. I think probably at the moment I would put the top of that list as as Angela Merkel. OK, I think I think she's she's been a remarkable leader in a very difficult period. Um, and I think she's shown you know people will criticize she's she's like all of us got weaknesses and people would say well you know she's she's sometimes uh prevaricating the rest of the thing i i i just think she has been somebody that has taken difficult positions on things where she's taken a very humane approach migration perhaps one of very good example at political cost um and I think that I really admire that when you take up difficult positions, but you explain it of why, even though you know that's going to come with a political cost. So I think Angela Merkel would be the one probably of the moment that I, I have been lucky enough to meet, but not on a dinner date. Yeah. And what about in the past? In the past? Um, uh, that's a good question. That's a good question. In the past, who would I like to have met? Um, uh, well, we can come back to it. If someone pops into your head, we can come back yeah. to it. <laughs> I was going to ask, when have you found the most challenging time in your career? It, was, was that recently or actually has it been, you know, when you were starting out in your academic career? When have you actually found most challenging? I think the most challenging time, I mean, obviously, we've been through a very challenging time at Welcome and, and you know, with the, with the reforms and, and that's always been very difficult. But I think you're right that the most challenging times are when you feel least certain um, and, and you're probably at the start. I think that is the most difficult time in, in anybody's career. You, you know, sitting where I am now, I'm not saying it's easier because there are challenges, but, but it's after many years of doing things. I think the most challenging time was during my PhD. Um, I'd come out of clinical medicine and, and I found the transition to going into, but back to doing basic science. And it was pretty basic science around immunology. Um, and I, it was really challenging. I, I, did, I found it really difficult. Uh, in clinical medicine, there are challenges, of course, but, but you are very much part of a team. Um, there is quite a lot of, of pos very positive feedback, often from patients, their families, your, your colleagues, your peers, um, and everybody else, it's pretty instantaneous feel, feel back. You know, in the main, patients get, do get better and, and they're, they're incredibly grateful for that. And it's very positive feedback. In the PhD, it's very isolated. It can be very isolated. And I had great supervisors. I'm not criticizing that. But, you know, the first year or 18 months, two years of the PhD, things didn't work. Uh, they, I struggled. Um, I, I looked across at others, colleagues who were doing their PhDs at more or less the same time. They all seem to be successful. They all seem to be producing stuff, you know, apparently with ease. Of course, it was not true. But but that first couple of years, of the PhD, I found really very, very difficult. And actually, I came across a letter I wrote to to the head of the department of my supervisor. This would be about 18 months in saying I've given it a shot, but I can't do this um you know i'm gonna have to stop um and uh and thankfully myself and 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 the people we we talked ourselves out of it and we kept going but but it was a really difficult time yeah I, I, no one gets results that they publish in the first two years do they <laughs> no, i hope well i hope not and and i think the pa i would i had great it was a great department group to work on in fact i'm going uh, out on Friday to to recognize the, the retirement of, of somebody that was great, D David Beeson in what I did, and Angela Vincent in in the PhD. But but I think we underappreciate how diff how how challenging going through a PhD is. Um, you know, I think it, the mentorship and support I think in the main, including in York, has got so much better. Um, 
but I think we we underappreciate the challenges of going through a PhD. Do you ever feel a PhD should come with a distinction or not? No. No? Just keep it as a PhD as a PhD. Yeah. Because I, I think I think I'd be interested in your view on this. I, I think through primary school, high school, university, PhD, we are putting so much pressure on people. Uh, you know, the 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 levels of um, pressure to not just get a degree, but to get a two-one, to get a first, to 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 get A-level results. To if we now introduce that into the graduate programs as well, I, I just think we're going to be leaving a younger generation driven by results. And seventy-six is better than seventy-five. And false, false. There's a wonderful book on the bookshelf behind me, the tyranny of metrics. Um, I think we're in danger of losing the the tree for the woods and and thinking we can measure everything and that, that measure matters and that there is a difference between 76 and 75 or 55 and 54. So I, I wouldn't, because I think we already put too much pressure. Okay. And I, I, you know, I really like the Dutch system. Uh -huh. It takes a lot longer. So I don't like the length of time it necessarily takes. I think that's maybe limiting. Yeah. Uh, but I do like the fact that there's so many chapters already published. Essentially, it's just a, a, a summary of published work. I quite like that. I like to see, you know, in physics and chemistry, a lot of the publications are a lot faster. People right. publish more snippets, maybe right. of data. In biology, we tend to have to put everything together into one big publication. I, I wonder if that could change mentally and just start publishing results faster. Yep. Uh, do you have thoughts around that? I, I... Well, may, maybe actually the last couple of years will have an influence on that. Um, you know, we, we've, if you think of the way we're publishing stuff at the moment, it, it looks very different to 2019 and before in the biological sciences, life sciences, you know, the preprint system, the open access, I, I think it's transforming the way people publish. Uh, the only, and this is a personal thing as a result of my PhD, maybe, I, I, I like the Dutch system as well. And I like the fact that the, the viva, if you like, the interview at the end is, is largely a public event. Yep. Um, and I love that. I was at one recent, not recently, actually, it was two years, three years ago now in Amsterdam. And I really, I agree with you. Uh, the only thing I would hesitate for is it's all driven by publication. We already have, again, uh, pressure to publish. <clears throat> that, that, that if, that I think it's my a broader conversation, I, I worry that this is generating short-term science, um, where we drive science into something that can lead to an almost immediate publication. And that's, we've lost, we could, we're in danger of losing what science is there to do, which is to ask big questions that might take a long time. And, and the pressure to publish is so intense uh, that I worry it's leading to sort of vision um, perspectives, which are one, two, two and a half years in the making before the next grant, the next paper, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I agree with you on the Dutch system. I love the openness and the public nature of the interview at the end. Uh, but I just worry if we all go down a publication route that we will just, again, add to the, the pressure. We are nearly at the hour mark. So, so Jeremy, which I haven't used that phrase as yet. Uh, so you've got your night bachelor. <clears throat> did, that, did that make a difference? to you? Did it open doors? Did it suddenly change how people perceived you? <clears throat> yeah. Was it a good thing, bad thing? Nice thing? It's a, of course, it, it's a, it's a very nice thing. Um, and it, and it, and it would, it, it's absolutely, you know, to acknowledge that and say that, you know, I, I, um, um, it's a very nice thing and it, it, it yeah. Be I was waiting for you to say that you were honoured to get it, which is obvious, but <laughs> honor to get it. And and um, and I was lucky, lucky enough because this does matter. Um, I did something you shouldn't do, but I felt it was right. And I actually I'm sure it was right. Uh, I knew I knew when I was going to get it. Uh, and I also knew that my mother was was dying. She she had uh, mesothelioma. Um, and and she knew she was dying, but I was able to tell her after I knew, but before it had been publicly announced, and and that was very important for me. Um, she came from a different generation, and and yeah, that was a very special moment. Yeah, I, I yes, I, I guess 
I'm presuming then that to make her proud was one of your drivers or motivation in your life then? It always is. It, it always is. And uh, yeah, no, it was a very special moment. Um, something though, somebody said, uh, it's, it's amazing what you re remember, uh, particularly what things nice people say. Um, this was back in, I was, I remember at high school and, and a, a good friend at the time and still in touch with that individual uh, said something which which has remained with me and was very important with me and it was about it was about something small about becoming captain of a team or something and it was voted for it was unusual in those days but it, he said something which stuck with me very importantly he said I, I voted for you because I thought if you got it you wouldn't change <clears throat> and, and that, that's very important I think whether criticism or positive things or yes knighthoods or winning prizes whatever it is I, I think I think remaining grounded and remaining who you were before and afterwards is really important and uh, that's not to not enjoy the moment it's not to celebrate that with your family or whoever else but I think I think remaining grounded is really important and not changing and that that knighthood was in recognition of the global health. So it's a, it's a UK honour, but it, it's for the international outreach. And obviously you've chaired, co-chaired many World Health Organization committees. Uh, you did a lot of work with Ebola, uh, with the publications coming out on how to deal with Ebola and the outbreaks. But you were also on the German Ministry of Health as well for a while, or a member of the German Ministry of Health. How different was that? Yeah, really. Very, yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's very different. Um, it was an, it was a group, a small group. I don't know, eight people or so. Uh, I think six people from Germany and two of us internationally for two years uh, with a with a program to advise on the German government on their future role in global affairs, global science, global global health. It was yeah, huge honour to do that, um, and a very interesting, very different uh, approach actually. Uh, very international in the sense that the advice came in from all places, um, and a lot of it has been taken forward uh, in both the previous government under Merkel, but also the new government that's coming into place now and in the new year uh, are committed to taking that forward. And that was so that was very uh, hugely positive experience. And the fact that you felt that that advice and recommendations were largely taken forward um, and, and implemented within the federal government of Germany. So that, yeah, that was a, a very, very a special thing to do actually for a couple of years. I, 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 sitting here and, and just thinking that you, you've been on the World Health Organization chairing committees, the Ministry for Health in Germany, SAGE, obviously in the UK, you're director of Wellcome Trust, you're still publishing results. What is it with immunologists? I, 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 at York, I can think of Debbie Smith, Paul Kay, <laughs> Jeremy Mottram. I don't know how you get so much into a day. It's phenomenal. That how do you concentrate on so many different tasks? Yeah, uh, I have a lot of downtime. I, I, I think. I think time management is really important and, and finding that space we talked about earlier. I think you regenerate in that space. Um, I, I do, you know, you think, what is it that leads a scientific career? I, I, th I, I am still as curious about stuff today as, as a seven-year-old. I, I still am as excited by, the, by, by questions as I was as an undergraduate. Um, I, I still love that uncertainty of not knowing the answer. Um, and, and I think that is, I, I, yeah, I, but I do turn off. I, I do, you know, I do create, I do, particularly in the last decade, I, I've really have worked very hard to, to make sure you turn off. And I'm sure that your creativity is enhanced by that. Um, it isn't 24 seven. It isn't a, a career doesn't need to be 24 seven. In fact, it mustn't be. You, we all need that external uh, diversity of thinking coming into us by by picking up other stuff uh, that isn't our natural our natural place. Um, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, we, we are up to the hour mark, but a different question to end on. Who do you think I should get on this next? 
<laughs> Paul Nurse. <laughs> Paul Nurse. Um, I don't. I don't know if she, I, I'm always inspired by Eliza Manning and Buller. Um, you know, she was a brilliant chair at Wellcome and obviously an amazing uh, history, not from a scientific background, but um, from a very rich uh, uh, career as well that, that did some remarkable things. I, uh, Mike Ferguson, uh, yeah. you know, his, uh, particularly with the title of this podcast, I mean, I think Mike has had a, a fantastic career, made an enormous contribution to people and to science. Um, uh, um, who else? Um, Boris Johnson, you could... Uh, <laughs> I don't think I hope of getting Boris. Um, uh, you could think about... I think we talked about this at the start, but I, I think it's a brilliant idea. Uh, I, would, I would also run, a, run a, a series of interviewing people at different stages in their career. And then if you had the appetite for it, repeat it in five years' time or ten years' time and just see where they went. And... Uh, and 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 how that changed. Um, I think that's a brilliant idea of yours, and and that would be a fantastic contribution to a memory um, and to a hit sort of historical record. Um, um, yeah, yeah, it'd be yeah, because obviously, if we look back on yourself twenty years ago in Vietnam, you'd never have dreamt any of this. No, uh, no. and and so obviously, as you say, opportunity drives it doesn't it it does I mean, and and what we shouldn't you know people which whatever our background you know we acknowledge as well the privilege uh, you know of any of our of, of, of our backgrounds um you know i was the, i think i'm right in saying the second of my family to go to university but that was in a different generation my parents didn't go to university but then that generation didn't necessarily go to you can't say that is true of of the generation of today uh, not everybody has those opportunities, as we know very, very well. But if you do are lucky, privileged enough to have opportunities, I, I do think it's, I do think there are these forks in the road. And, and on the whole, I think certainly in, in my life or career, I think the things that that I've regretted not doing things rather than the things I have done. Um, and I think when you're faced with a fork in the road, um, take the less well-travelled one. Okay, on that note, Jeremy, thank you so much for taking your time with us today. And thank you everyone for watching or listening to what's been a really inspirational, uh, really, really honoured that you actually you've taken your time today uh, to join us. So, Jeremy, thank you very much. Uh, Peter, it's been a great pleasure. You're brilliant at doing this as well as the day job. Um, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Microscopists a bite-sized bio podcast sponsored by Zeiss Microscopy. To view all audio and video recordings from this series, please visit bitesizebio.com forward slash the microscopists.